Lord Jesus, that's our heart's cry this morning. We just want you. We want your presence, your power, your glory, your strength working in and through us, Lord. We bring nothing to the table. You are everything. So, Lord, reveal, reveal to us this morning in your word how great and awesome and how magnificent you are. Lord, as we study Revelation, Lord, all we want is you. We want your presence and your power in our life. You are enough. You are enough. If everything is taken from our hands and taken from our life and all we have is you, we have everything that we need. So, Lord, thank you that you are enough. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. All God's people said... Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, it's great to see you guys this morning. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. This morning we're looking at Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And we're looking at the first two churches that, uh, in the book of Revelation. The first two churches of Asia Minor that Jesus is speaking to here. Uh, and Revelations chapter 2 and 3 in our text, Jesus is going to describe and gives seven messages to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Some people interpret chapter 2 and 3 as the church age, and each church representing a different time period, with the early church uh, of the first century being represented by Ephesus, then Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and finally the last church before the rapture, the lukewarm church of Laodicea. That could be the case. That could be the case in our text. But I see them as a spiritual checkup for all churches of all ages of every generation. They reveal to us what the Lord Jesus Christ expects of his church and what pleases him and what does not please him. The truth be told, there is no such thing as a perfect church. Every church has its strengths and every church has their weaknesses. So family, as we dive into this portion of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, let, it, let us study uh, Revelation chapter 2 and 3 and see them as a spiritual checkup for our church and for your personal walk with Christ. Let us allow the Holy Spirit to show us our strengths so we can be an example for others to follow and show us our weaknesses so that we can improve. Let us make, the, make it count and let us make the most of our study. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Lord, as we look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, uh, show us your awesome power. Show us who you are and show us how we can improve as a church. And if there's areas that we're doing great, Lord, let us continue to do great and be a good example. If there's areas that we, we're um, not doing well in, Lord, help us to repent and bring it back to your word. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen. So Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church... To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. Now the first thing the text says in Revelation 2.1, he says to the angel of the church. Now when we think of church, our definition of church today is different from the definition of church in the first century. Our definition of church today is this building. What do we say? We like to say, let's go to church. Let's go to church. We think about church government. We think about the geographical location. 
but the Greek word for church is ekklesia. And it means those who have been called out. So when he says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, he's writing to all the believers there at Ephesus. And so the ecclesia, we are the ones who have been called out. We have, we have put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're part of the body of Christ that he's called out of darkness into his glorious light. So he's writing here to the Christians at, at, at Ephesus. We know Ephesus was established on Paul's second missionary journey. And, and it was a church that in Acts chapter 20 that uh, Paul warned that after he left, that wolves would come in, false teachers would come in. And he told the elders there on the beach before he left for Jerusalem, he says, be on your guard, be on your guard. And it appears that they did exactly that. Because here this is, that was when Paul established the church was the early 60 ADs. This is 30 years later in 95 AD. But notice the description of Jesus in Revelation 2.1. He says, Jesus has what? the seven stars in his right hand. Revelation chapter one, verse 20, tells us that the seven stars are the seven angels. The Greek word for angels is angelos. It can be translated angel or messenger. So this is likely a messenger or the leader at each church. And what is the application for us today when we look at that phrase, the seven stars in his right hand? This is how pastors and leaders in the church should view themselves. This is how, this is a biblical view of church leadership. We, you and I are tools in the master's hand to minister to the body of Christ. We should be led by the Holy Spirit, submitted to the word of God, and living to please him. We should be the hands and feet of Jesus to the body of Christ. As leadership at Calvary Chapel Irmo, one of our top priorities, not only minister, the ministry of the word and worship and discipleship, but it is to be the hands and feet of Jesus to the body here. That's our job because we should be in the master's hands. We should be in his hand serving the body of Christ. That's a biblical view of church leadership is that we're in his hands serving. Notice, notice also he says there in um, Verse 1, he says, Jesus is walking among the seven golden lampstands. Again, if you go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, it tells us the seven golden lampstands are what? The seven churches. And this is a picture. He's saying here, he's walking among the seven golden lampstands. When I get this picture in my head of these seven golden lampstands in heaven, and Jesus is walking amongst the churches, it makes me think about Jesus walking here on earth coming and seeing what's going on inside the churches. You know, when you and I, most people, when they walk into a church, what do we pay attention to? We pay attention to how nice the sanctuary is or the color of the walls or what flavor coffee they serve. But family, Jesus looks at none of that. That's not on his agenda when he walks into the church and he sees what's going on. When the Lord Jesus Christ walks through the church, he looks to see, number one, are they worshiping in spirit and truth? You know, are we worshiping in spirit and truth? As Jesus said in John chapter four, you know, we're called to worship God in spirit. In other words, from our heart, from our soul, from the inside. Uh, that's how we worship the Lord in spirit and truth. We worship in truth according, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, but also in truth in accordance with scripture. The Bible guides and directs 
our worship and how we worship. So that's what he's looking for. He's looking, when Jesus walks among, in the church, are, are they teaching the people to love and obey God? Again, that's our goal is not to make you Calvary Chapelites, not to make you uh, disciples of John Calvin or disciples of Jacob Arminius. Where our, our goal and our mission is to, is to make you disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our heart and our goal, that you go out into this world and that you love and obey God, that you're here for his presence, you're here for his glory. When Christ walks through the church, you know, I, I tend to believe by his spirit as he walks through the church, are they studying the Bible? You know, the Bible is what got the church to where it is today. The Bible is the word of God. The Bible is inspired by God. The Bible is the sword of the spirit. It's the, it's the scriptures that, that sharpen us. And it's the scriptures that guide us. It's the scriptures that lead us. You know, one thing that should be required in every church service is that the Bible be opened and studied and, and, and read. And, and we talk about the meaning of the text. And then we talk about the application. What does this mean for us today? Family, I hope that's why you come to church. I hope that's why you come to church every Sunday and every Wednesday, not out of religious tradition or duty, but because you want to love God more. You want to obey God more. That's why we're here. And I believe Christ walks in churches all across the land, and those are the things he is looking for. Are they in the word? Are they worshiping in spirit and truth? Is the leadership, the pastors, the leaders, the messengers, the angelos, them being in the palm of Christ's hand, are, are they ministering to the body? Let's look at verse 2. So, so verse 1, and, and all these churches that you see in these two chapters, they kind of follow all the same pattern. First, there's a description of Jesus. Then there's a commendation. So let's look at the commendation. This is where Jesus says to them, hey, this is what you're doing right. This is what you're doing right. Look at it, verse 2. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, for you have found them to be false. And you have, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Man, the church at Ephesus was doing a lot of things right. Number one, according to verse two, it says, he says, I know your deeds. In other words, they were being a fruitful church. They were busy about the Lord's work. They were working. They were serving. Their hands were to the plow. You know, that's one of the things, part of Christianity, is you coming and being a part of your local church and putting your hands to the plow and saying, how can I serve? How can I help people? Going out into the community into your community centers, in your schools, in, in, in other areas of life, and being the hands and feet of Christ to the world. We need to be a fruitful church. He says, I know your deeds. I know you're busy. Uh, a hardworking church, he says there in verse 2. He says, I know your toil. So they were a hardworking church. That word toil in the Greek, it means to labor to the point of exhaustion. What does that tell us? That they did their very best you know, there's, thing, there's this thing in ministry. It's called the excellence of ministry. We want to be excellent in ministry, not so people can look at us and say, wow, look how great you do it. That's not the reason we want to be excellent in ministry. We want to be excellent in ministry 
because we're doing it for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we want to give our very best effort forward in all ministries, whether it's leading a Bible study, teaching, worship, children, pro-present, you know, all the different ministries, our outreaches to the schools. We want to give them our very best because we're doing it not for them, but for the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he says there also, um, he says, I know your perseverance. So that the uh, church at Ephesus, they were a persevering church. They did not quit under difficult circumstances. They didn't dip out. They did not waver. Their hands were to the plow. They were focused. And it says also, they were a holy church. He says there in verse 2, he says, You put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. They were a holy church. They would not tolerate false teaching. And how can you identify a false teacher? How can you identify something that is unbiblical? What is it that you have to be? You have to be, according to Acts chapter 17, a Berean, a student of the word. Everything that's said and done, everything that's taught in every class, in in the pulpit, everywhere, should be examined carefully by the scriptures. You know, we need to be students of the word. In this area of the church of Ephesus, and where as he's, Jesus is describing them in verse 2 and 3, man, this is a model for us today. We want to be a fruitful church. We want to produce lots of fruit, not for ourselves and not for our name, but for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be a hardworking church. You know, we want to put our hands to the plow. We want to be a persevering church. We, want, we don't want to be on one week and off next week. We want to be focused in our mission to the end and let nothing sway us to the left or right. And we want to be a holy church. We want to be a holy church that does it by the book, that does it according to the scriptures because the scriptures are instruction. So this is a model for us. You know, he says, you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. Again, we do it. Why do we do it? For his name's sake. For the name that's above all names, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have not grown weary in serving him. Let's continue, verse 4. You know, no church is perfect. Uh, No church is perfect. Calvary Chapel is not perfect. All the churches around the world are not perfect. We all have areas of improvement. And thank the Lord for grace. Look at verse 4. Jesus says to them, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Here is his concern. The church at Ephesus had left what was most important. And what's the most important thing in our Christian walk above ministry, above everything else? Is your love for Jesus. Everything flows from love for God. Every ministry, everything we do for the kingdom It all flows from a heartfelt commitment of love and allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 and 38, Jesus gives us the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Family, everything we say and do in life, in church, in family, in ministry, This is the foundation, love for Jesus.
love for God. Let me tell you something. When you love God, you will obey God. And when you obey God, you'll be fruitful and you'll be productive in life. It's so easily, it's so easy, excuse me, um, especially in ministry, especially in ministry, to get caught up in serving, working in the church, and we forget the reason why we are here. It's almost as if the ministry becomes an idol, and we have to repent and say, not love our ministry or, or love the thing that we're a part of, but to say, Lord Jesus, I love you, and because I love you, I want to serve in this area. So that's very important. That's, that, that was what they had done. They had, they had left their first love. They were busy and they were fruitful, but they departed from their first love. Look at verse 5. Praise the Lord. Jesus gives them a, um, the remedy. He says, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. So we talked about Jesus' description in verse 1. We talked about uh, his commendation. And now we talk about his exhortation. He says, um, do not put serving me above loving me. What is it he says here? They've left their first love. Have you left your first love in life? Maybe this is a reminder to you this morning through the scriptures, through the Holy Spirit, through the pastor. Let the Lord Jesus Christ be your first love. And if you have left your first love, I've got three words for you. Three words for you based on verse five. Number one, remember. Remember. What does it say in verse five? It says, remember from where you have fallen. Remember what it was like when you first became a Christian. The zeal, the passion, the fellowship, the Bible studies, the encouragement, the love that you experienced from Christ himself, from the Holy Spirit, and those around you. Remember it. In other words, if you've left your first love, go back into your memory. Go back into your mind and remember what it was like when you first came to Christ. Remember the joy. Remember the excitement and how amazing it was. And then after you've refreshed your memory, what does he say do in that verse? Repent. Repent means to, it means to turn away. It means to ask God for forgiveness and say, Lord Jesus, I'm no longer placing this above you, but I'm going to love you first. Please forgive me. I repent. I turn away from it, and I place you on your proper throne, on the throne of my life. And after he says, remember, repent, he, the, the phrase, he says, do the deeds you did at first. My third word starts with the R, three R's. Remember, repent, repeat. Repeat. He says, do the deeds you did at first. Go back. Start over. Do a reset. That's okay. I've done many of them in my life where I, 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 I've lost my way. And what do I do? I do a reset. I go back to point A, and I remember the cross. I remember the resurrection. I remember how I was lost in my sin. I get back into those verses of, that talk about salvation and, and talk about intimacy with Christ, and I return to my first love. There's nothing wrong with that. There's times, you know, all, even Christians need revival in life. Even Christians need times of, of refreshing. The book of Acts says, it says, repent, therefore, in times of refreshing, 
may come. So we need that too. And notice at the end of verse 5, he says, Or else I'm coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Friends and family, this is a warning. This is a warning to every church that if we do not keep Christ first as our first love, he will come, he will come and remove our lampstand. Now, what does that mean? He'll remove our lampstand. He'll, he'll, we'll, we'll no longer be a church. We might be a religious organization. We might be a meeting of people, but God's presence and his power and his Holy Spirit will not be there. We have to guard ourselves from placing ministry or anything else above your love for Christ, okay? Love him first. Love him first in all things. Let's look at verse 6. Verse 6, he says, yet this, you do ha- yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Who are the Nicolaitans that he's talking about here in Revelation chapter 2? According to the church fathers, the Nicolaitans were led by a, name, by a man named Nicholas, possibly one of the deacons named in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. Church history tells us that they did not want to continue in the faith, so they went rogue, and they embraced the heresy of Gnosticism. Gnosticism taught that everything spiritual is good and everything earthly is evil. They separated their spiritual life in Christ from how they lived their life on earth. This was their way of saying, you can do whatever you want to with your body. There are no rules. Indulge in your flesh. They encouraged sexual immorality. God's okay with that because all he cares about is your spirit. Got one word, heresy, false teaching. This is modern day antinomianism, which antinomianism is the belief that you can trust in Christ, you can be spiritual, and everything's right on the inside, but on the outside you live like the devil. And that is unbiblical, and that's false teaching. Christ expects us to honor him. Not, nobody's perfect, okay? Nobody's perfect. Nobody's got to put it together. But God expects us to be moving in the direction of holiness and obedience in our life after we put our faith in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Friends and family, we're supposed to love him first. Love, allegiance, commitment from our soul, from our hearts, uh, from our mind, heart, soul, and mind, and our love for him. But right behind that love and faith is an obedient life, is a life that says, you know what? I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. You see, when a person comes to Christ, a funeral takes place. A funeral takes place. Whose funeral takes place? Yours. You die when you come to Christ and you live for him. We die to the old man. We die to the flesh. Okay? Our life is no longer for our honor and our glory, but our life is for his honor and for his glory. So we honor him. And notice he says there in verse 6, he says, look at what Jesus says. Look at it closely. I want you to see this phrase. 
He says, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You know what? We hate sin. And we can say that as Christians. We hate sin. Notice what it does not say. It does not say he hates the Nicolaitans. We don't hate sinners. We don't hate no one. But we hate the deeds of darkness that pull people's souls down. Okay? We don't, we don't hate no one or no person, no matter what their spiritual state is. But we hate the deeds of sin. And Jesus says there at the very end of verse 6, which I also hate. You know, we're called to be holy. We're called to be holy. And our job as Christians, when we, 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 when we look at people that are entangled by sin, is we're on a rescue mission. We're on a mission to help them, to share the gospel with them, to disciple them, and to bring them out of that place of walking in darkness and walking in the deeds that God hates, to living a life that pleases the Lord. Amen? Verse 7. Verse 7. This first church gets wrapped up this, this morning. Uh, we're actually going to look at two churches. We're going to look at Smyrna also. But verse 7 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's interesting. Here in the last book of the Bible, what does Jesus do? He goes back to the first book of the Bible. He goes back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. There in the garden, Adam and Eve rebelled. They fell into sin. In Genesis 3, they are banished from the garden of the tree of life, and eternal life is taken away. It's taken away. Sin has come into the world. The fall has taken place, and sin is taking its full course throughout human history. The Bible says the, the soul that sins shall die. Why is there death in the world? Because of sin, because of the fall. But here in the last book of the Bible, he says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. In other words, Jesus is saying through his death, through his resurrection, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, what was lost in the garden has been now restored through the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a great reward for you, family and friends, for, for, for believers who persevere, who overcome, and who remain faithful to Christ, the tree of life. We saw, if you go back and read it, it's in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, we see the, the tree of life there in the garden that they were banished from, they were excommunicated from, they couldn't go close to it. But if you go to the end of the book of Revelation, what do you see in heaven between the rivers? The tree of life. The tree of life. He's given us eternal life. What was lost in the garden has been restored through Jesus. What an amazing truth. And there's this amazing, great reward to believers who persevere, overcome, and remain faithful to Christ. Will that be said of you? Will that be said of you? Will that be said of me? That's my hope. That's my prayer as a pastor, as I teach you guys, as I encourage you, as we walk through the word, is that you will live a life of faithfulness and commitment to Christ. Nothing breaks my heart more. I'm not judgmental. I'm not angry. I'm not upset. But nothing breaks my heart more than to see when a Christian has lost his way. 
but nothing gives me more joy and more excitement than to see when a Christian who's lost his way comes back to, the, comes back to Christ and comes back to the Lord. That brings, that bring, hopefully that brings your heart great joy because it brings my heart great joy. That's our heart. That's our motive. That's the heart of ministry is bringing people back to Christ, bringing people back to the Father, bringing people back to the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's continue. Let's continue. I wanted to do a Smyrna also. It's just uh, four verses, so I wanted to cover Smyrna this morning. So family from the church of uh, uh, the, the, the church of Ephesus, the application is, have you left your first love? And, and, and if you have, remember, repent, and repeat, and come back to Christ. Let's look at Smyrna. Verse 8, he says, And to the angels of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. Interesting. What does the name Smyrna mean? It mean the, the, the Greek word for Smyrna is the word myrrh. Is the word myrrh. This name is synonymous with trials, persecution, and suffering. The church at Smyrna lived up to her name and lived up to her name well. The bishop of, at Smyrna, his name was Polycarp, who was a disciple of John. This was written in 95 AD, but church history tells us in AD 160, uh, Polycarp will be arrested by the Roman authorities and told to blaspheme Jesus and, and abandon the Christian faith, or he will be burned at the stake. They and the church at Smyrna endured an intense persecution because of their geographical location and the Roman authorities that were there close to the church. And when uh, Polycarp was threatened to be burned at the stake, threatened to be put to death, I quote, he says this, church history tells us, he tells the Roman authorities, he says, four score, Four score and six years, which is 86 years, I have served him, and he has never done me injury. How then can now I blaspheme my king and savior? What an amazing statement. Has Jesus ever done you wrong? He has been good. He has been faithful. He has been awesome. He has been amazing. He's held me in the good times, and he's held me in the bad times. He's been there for me faithfully always and that's what polycarp the church bishop at smyrna tells the roman authorities then after a failed attempt to burn him at the stake church history tells us that polycarp was speared to death they were this church of all the churches this was the church that was persecuted the most you know, I see each church that we're going to go through over here the next couple weeks. They show us a different angle. They show us a different aspect of church life. Ephesians, don't lose your first love. Keep Christ first. Here at Smyrna, endure hardships as a good soldier for Christ. Understand that there's tribulation in the Christian life. Jesus promised it in John chapter 16. There's difficult days. There's probably difficult days ahead for the church. But as Christians, we got to stay the course, stay the course in serving Christ. And again, after a failed attempt to burn him at the stake, which church history says when they went to burn him, his body, would, his, his body wouldn't catch on fire. 
And it was upsetting them that his body wouldn't catch on fire. And people believe it was a supernatural presence of God that surrounded Polycarp. And after his body wouldn't catch on fire, the Roman authorities got so frustrated that through the flames, they speared him to death. And that was how he lived his purpose-driven life. And that was how he stepped into eternity as a martyr for Christ. But let's look at the uh, church in Smyrna. He says in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. A synagogue of Satan is anybody that, that, that denies the deity of Christ Jesus. Anybody that denies the, the essentials of the gospel, that Jesus is the God, man, 100% deity, 100% man, that anybody that, that denies his death, his resurrection, and the essential truths of the Christian faith. But, but Christ has no concerns for this church. This little church in Myrrh was being crushed because they love Jesus. You know, no matter what happens in life, no matter what happens in life, no matter the difficulties that come our way, our commitment as Christians is to be faithful to Christ. Material, uh, notice he says there, uh, I know your tribulations, I know your difficulties. He says, in your poverty, he says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. Material wealth is not, I repeat, is not a sign of God's blessing. Matter of fact, material wealth can be a distraction in our Christian walk. The greatest wealth in this universe is knowing Jesus. And if you have Jesus, you have everything. If you don't have Jesus, you are the one who is poor, blind, and naked. Christ in us makes us the most wealthiest person in the world, okay? Because what we have, what you have, Christian, will last forever. It will take you through this life and into eternity. And one day on the other side, you're going to be like, truly, he was enough. Truly, Christ was everything. You know, the money, the houses. And don't get me wrong. I like to save money. You can ask my wife. I'm a debt slayer. I don't like debt. I like to get it paid off. I like to save money. I like to take care of our home finances and making sure we're, we're prepared for the long run. And, and God does bless us and, and take care of us physically, financially, in our home and everything. But those aren't the ultimate signs of God's blessing. The ultimate sign of God's blessing is an obedient life that serves Christ. Verse 10. Verse 10, he says, And do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until, until death and I will give you the crown of life. Again, you know, as I'm studying this passage, at times I was thinking to myself, I don't know if, if, we're, if, if we're worthy to look at this passage. Because we don't experience a lot of persecution. We don't experience a lot of tribulation for our faith here in America. But let me tell you this, though. We have brothers and sisters on the other side of planet Earth 
in the Middle East and other places that this is very applicable in the Middle East, in Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, in those Middle Eastern countries where Christianity is extremely illegal and is banned. This passage is very applicable to them. Not to say it couldn't come here. It could. But we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared in all situations to stay faithful to Christ. Looking at verse 10, you know, persecution and suffering can be good for the church. Okay? That that may sound like an oxymoron, but persecution and suffering can be good for the church because what it does is it purifies the church. It purifies the church and it separates um, true and false converts. It, it shows, it reveals our real heart and, and where, we, where we are at in the, with the Lord when the authorities and the government and the world around us is opposing God. Will we remain faithful to God or will we bend to their pressure? Ungodly, tyrannical, Governments can be, you ready for this? Probably gonna get some pushback on this one. It can be God's will. It can be God's will. Because ungodly, tyrannical governments, they force every believer into a decision. They reveal to us our heart. Will we obey God or will we obey Caesar? You know, persecution broke out in the early church, in the book of Acts. And what did it do? It caused the gospel to spread. You know, it, it, it put some leather on our backs. It put some toughness in our bones when we experience persecution and difficulty. So we need, we need some persecution. We need some difficulty for for, just for the sole purpose of testing our faith, making sure we're in it for the right reasons. And then he closes in verse 11. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. It's interesting here, you know, you have the Word of God speaking to us. But in verse 11, your your text should be in red letter because these are the words of Christ. We have the Lord Jesus speaking here, but the Lord Jesus is saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, the scriptures, the scripture says that the scriptures are the sword of the Spirit. They're the sword of the Spirit. And we need to listen carefully to what the Holy Spirit is showing us in our Bible study, in our fellowship, as we move forward. And it says, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Again, the church at Smyrna was a church that was persecuted. You know, if we're not experiencing persecution, praise the Lord, and we're thankful for that. But let's pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are experiencing persecution. The application for coming to church today and for all of our online visitors and online families that are watching is, is, uh, as we study these two churches, is this, have you left your first love? Have you left your first love? And if you have, just get it right with the Lord. Get it right with the Lord. Remember, think back in your mind to when you first came to Christ. 
Think back to all the joy you experienced, all the excitement, all the fellowship. Man, I can't wait to dive into this book of the Bible. I, I can't wait to read the scriptures. I can't wait to have fellowship. Remember those things and let it rekindle your passion. Let it rekindle your fire. And then, after you've remembered it, repent. Repent. First John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. Let today be the day where you say, Lord Jesus, I'm coming back to you. I'm placing you first in my life. You know, and not that you lost your salvation, but again, and there's times in ministry where we put the ministry above our Lord and we got to fix that. We got to place him first, our love and our commitment to him above all we say and do. And then finally, repeat. Start over. Go back to the cross. Think about his resurrection. Go back to the word and let's rekindle our first love. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, thank you for this morning's Bible study. Lord, we, uh, we see what's taking place in our world, and we lift up our brothers and sisters around the world that are undergoing suffering and trials for their faith. We lift them up to you, Lord, and we pray, Lord, for their faithfulness and their commitment to you, God. And Father, for us here at home in South Carolina, in the United States, where the persecution isn't as intense, pray, Father God, that you prepare our hearts and prepare our minds for when it does come, Lord, that we will have our foundation established and that we will stand firm through all storms, through all tribulation, through all persecution. And Father, for, um, so Father, strengthen us, Father. Encourage us, Lord, and help us to learn as we've studied here in Revelation chapter two, what you expect of us, Lord. Let us persevere. Father, let us work hard and let us place you first in everything and all we say and do. Lord, we love you and we praise you. For it's in your mighty name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.